0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 462 with my guest, Jesse Neeland. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The social media handles you can follow me at are at MentalPod, and MentalPod.com is also the website. Uh, You can go there. You can browse the forum. There's tons of different threads on a variety of subjects. Um, You can support the podcast financially financially. By going through the website, uh, you can become a Patreon monthly donor, which we really need. Um, you can do a one-time donation through PayPal. You can fill out surveys, which are a huge part of uh, of the show. All kinds of stuff. <laughs> I've got Gracie on my lap with my dog Gracie right now, and she is about. I don't know if you can hear, she's about an inch from the microphone, but um, oh, I'm so. I love, I just love her so much. It sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but she's a stray that um, my friend found. I had a friend come stay with me about six months ago, and he said, well, I just found two strays. Can I bring them with me? And I said, sure. And she walked in the door, and I was like, she is the exact dog that I've wanted, but have been afraid to get, because I didn't want to feel the pain of losing a dog again. So I didn't didn't look for a dog after Ivy passed away about uh, six months ago and Gracie is just so affectionate um, I don't even mind when she when she throws up on things I woke up this morning and she had somehow managed to throw up on all three cushions of the couch was <laughs> like you know what well done well played small madam. She's just so affectionate. And anyway... All right, excuse me, Gracie. I gotta... I gotta pull out some papers, read some surveys. This is from the Love's survey filled out by a woman who calls herself crazy fun. And she writes, I love waking up on weekend mornings not having to work and just lounging on our super cozy, fluffy couch with a blanket on me and a hot cup of coffee in one of my favorite mugs sitting next to my husband and our dog. Love it. Love it. It's the simple things, man. I love the simple things. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a person who calls themselves the Human Terms and Conditions, and they write, I matched with a girl on Tinder, and we had some good conversation about music we both dig. The conversation fizzled out after a few days and we didn't message each other after that. Not more than a month later, we were both ten thirteen at the same mental hospital during the same time period. We're now fast friends, still talk about music and go to shows together all the time. Maybe there's a dating app for hooking up with people in psych wards. It would certainly be niche. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Dingleberry Snazicus, Schnazicus. Uh, and he writes earlier. Earlier this year, when I had a suicide attempt, my wife immediately came to help me, washing off the cut I had made in my my wrist. She didn't shame me. She just treated my wound like you'd treat any other wound. She called my pastor and a lady from our church to come over and comfort me. I felt so blessed. I have all these people in my life to comfort me in the darkest point of my life. When the lady from church showed up, she sat down next to me and said, You know cutting is a sin, right? Oh, my God. <sighs> she would probably, if if someone were hit by a car, she would probably kneel next to them and say, you know there's a chance you're going to die and that you might wind up eventually in hell. Hell would be sitting with her explaining the repercussions of things. Uh, one of our sponsors, actually our only sponsor today, is BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I'm a huge fan of it. I love not having to leave my house. Uh I love how much my therapist has helped me over the last couple of years. Um, so if you want to check it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor if they feel that they have one who is a good fit for you. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, Cerebral. I have uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist, Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, this last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. Uh, she helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that uh, that I can do. And, uh, and I felt a sense of relief. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code Mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet.
0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: And then finally, uh, before the interview, this is uh, a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Brit. She writes, when I was a little girl, the house we grew up in had a pantry that was set up off the ground, and I could not reach it unless, unless I climbed up into it. There were shutter doors, so you could see a little bit of light if you were inside the pantry. Me being as small as I was, this pantry was the perfect hiding spot. On random occasions, I would grab a spoon from the drawer and climb up into the pantry and shut the doors behind me unscrew the jar of peanut butter and go to town as the light from the kitchen was scattered over my hiding figure through the shutter doors. God only knows how many times I double-dipped and never told a soul. Who knows why I thought I needed to hide and eat peanut butter, but those were some of the happiest moments, scooping that creamy deliciousness into my tiny face. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared scared. and And we're just all all in this together. There was no joy Overeating Apathy doesn't leave any marks Numbing out Physically I wish that I was a girl
0: Panic attacks are so violent Rudderless They were mistaken for seizures Shot coke in my neck
1: The TV was talking to me
0: Romantically I am becoming the woman that I feared
1: He said There's going to be a second of strike." Nothing's real And I'm going to die
0: Sometimes I just go Hey I can't deal Just
2: beyond
0: broken I'm out
2: You have to like fantasize about the person I'm with
0: I'm going to stop
2: it Fucking someone else
0: It's okay to be
1: blogger, social media person, an educator, an awareness raiser, uh, and somebody put me in contact with you because they said you have to talk to her. She is so passionate about talking about the relationship between sexuality and body image and self-esteem, and um, she's studying to be a certified sexologist, which I'm not even sure what that is, (laughs) but it sounds impressive. Uh, And so here you are, and we were talking before we started rolling about so many things that we're going to touch on. I don't even know where to begin, but I'm thinking, let's start with your story.
2: Cool. Yeah, thanks. So um, I came from the fitness world. I was a personal trainer in New York City, and I was... Uh, really good at it, really successful. I loved it. I loved lifting weights. I loved helping women feel strong, focus on um, performance and getting stronger and feeling more competent at moving rather than focusing on aesthetic and getting skinny or, you know, mm-hmm. losing fat or whatever. Uh, but what I discovered is... even I was,
1: Even looking ripped and more muscular, would that count as well or no?
2: I liked to just focus on what they could do. And nice. certainly... People were still coming to me to change the way they looked and they were still having conversations about the way they looked, but it was really awesome to see someone who came in being like, I guess I should work out to lose some inches here and here. And then, you know, six months later, they're like, I can deadlift 200 pounds. I'm amazing. Like just to get that focus out of their heads, that movement equals changing the way you look and putting it onto like your body's incredible and you can do all this awesome shit with it. So let's focus on that. Um, I loved it. I found it to be such an incredibly empowering tool. It was an empowering tool for me personally. Mm -hmm. So I was just sharing my love with everyone. Um, I loved working with really young women who had never trained before or had only done, you know, like cardio and boot camp type things before and introducing Mm -hmm. them to uh, lifting heavy weights and getting really strong. But I was also training like Victoria's Secret models and famous actresses. And we were having the exact same conversations about insecurities. They would pinch their belly fat, even if there was hardly any. They would like, you know, do a certain pose to show me their cellulite. They would be like, why can't I lose here and and not here? I want a big butt, but I want a small waist. And it was like all of this self-judgment was exactly the same even with the women who are literally setting the standard for, for beauty and body ideals in our culture, as it was with everybody else. So I was like, okay.
1: I saw an interview, I think it was a documentary on the modeling industry, and they were saying that, this model was saying every single model I know who are the most successful models, not a single one of them likes their bodies.
2: Exactly. I don't think I've met a single woman who liked her body maybe ever, who hasn't gone through this major healing process that I now am aware of. Uh, So yeah, so I was like, okay, well, it's not about your body then. It's obviously not about how you look. Something else is going on. Um, I went to a – I got certified as a life coach through this year-long program, IPEC, because I just wanted to have better conversations with people during the downtime between sets, You know, because that's when they're – like, they really trust you as a personal trainer. They're telling you personal things that they sometimes would never tell anybody else, their guard is down, you know, you're in a really personal sort of intimate space with them. And I was like, okay, I I want to have better I want to have better tools to handle when they they're like, oh, I'm just so frustrated. I feel disgusting. What do you say to that? Because it's not helpful to say, no, you're not. Like it doesn't do anything to be like, you're beautiful. So I
1: because then it makes them feel stupid that they can't see that they're beautiful. Yeah, they just
2: go, I know you think that, but like I don't feel beautiful. So it's actually quite invalidating. So I was like, I want better skills. And I I got the life coach certification and shifted my brand over the next couple of years away from fitness completely because I I feel like the fitness industry is part of the problem at this point. Um, Not fitness itself, but the industry and the messaging around it.
1: Right. What success looks like. Yes.
2: And that like health will equal being super lean or that if you do these things, all bodies will change to look like this ideal, or even that those people are better in some way, like more disciplined for, you know, having healthier, quote unquote, healthier habits.
1: Or, or that getting stronger and more fit is going to heal trauma.
2: That's true. I don't hear that one as much in the fitness industry, but I do hear it in healing circles for sure.
1: I mean, there may be people who yeah. who that's been the the, the change, but... In my experience and the people that I've met, there there needs to be more human connection. There, It needs to be a community of support totally. and unconditional love.
2: Yeah. I would say that it's a – to me, I think of like movement as a jumping off point. I think that connecting with my body for the first time was very healing. But the way it was healing was that it taught me I had work to do. Right. So – it was actually through an injury that I was like, what, you know, kind of flippantly to my body worker at the time. I was like, yeah, I don't know why that's so tight down there in my groin. He's like, really? You can't think of a single reason this part of your body might be protecting you. And I was like, oh, shit. So, yeah. And did yeah, this
1: person know your history?
2: He did not. He was just an incredibly intuitive person with whom I felt safe enough to let him even like touch me at the time. That was a looking back, I'm like, man, it's so odd that I let that happen. And yet so perfect, because um, he, I mean, he I, was
1: a massage therapist.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like he had a bunch of different uh, bodywork certs and I'm things sure. and sort of just uh, ran them through his own filter. But yeah, he, he moved really, really slowly with me made little suggestions like that. And all of a sudden, I found myself doing deep healing work around trauma, even acknowledging that I had trauma for the first time. And it was because my body had said no. Mm-hmm. And I started to listen because of, you know, the fitness connection that I was like listening to my body. So I think it's a beautiful jumping off point, but it is by no means a complete modality for healing.
1: And, and so what did the work look like for you, the non-physical work in healing that trauma?
2: Um, it looked like a lot of things. I mean, therapy.
1: And just... how old were you when the uh, trauma happened?
2: Um, so the sexual abuse that the first thing that happened was at seven, uh, there were some other things sort of sprinkled in throughout later childhood and then just becoming a teenager is basically all trauma all the time. Um, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, I mean, I developed early and then from then on, it was just like an endless stream of feeling, you know, objectified and harassed. Um, Yeah, and then I I ended up in an abusive relationship at eighteen, and as traumas sometimes do, it it was all all sort of uh, rolled into one story for me. Like the story being that something about me attracts people to like cross my boundaries. That that I'm so powerful somehow that I cause people who are good people and would never normally do bad things to do bad things to me. That was the story. So through therapy and. Sort of finding spirituality and a lot of the different healing things around that, Um, embodiment work and breath work, learning how to breathe again. Um, Yeah, rewriting stories about what, like, for example, a seven-year-old cannot be so powerful that she makes bad people or good people do bad things to her. Like, I can see that objectively, but I couldn't see it for myself. So sort of poking holes in that story until it started to seem ridiculous. Um, All of that. And, and Was happening over the next couple that, years.
1: That sounds to me like the common thing that the uh, traumatized person's brain does, which is to somehow take some responsibility for it, so that the world isn't as scary and random.
2: Completely, yes. It it makes it reasonable. You are like, yeah. well, if I am this powerful, <clears throat> if I am this way, then it all adds up. Like it's not it's not random. It does add that sense of, if not control, then predictability.
1: And and then setting us up for a lifetime, if we don't heal or change our views, thinking that our body is our greatest currency, and then we're watching the fluctuation of its value as we age and using it in relationships with people. And I don't know about you, but for me, objectifying them as Mm. somebody on the other end of my currency um because hmm. my body was used against me as a as a child so then th- everything was viewed through the prism of what do they think of my body yeah. are they turned on rather than trying to make a vulnerable human connection with somebody so uh, almost like i'm objectifying them as a customer
2: wow, yeah. of my
1: body rather than a, a human being with needs and feelings and, yeah. you know, etc.
2: Do you know, I, I've i done so much work around uh, self-objectification, and I never thought of it that way, as y- you, we, we are objectifying the other person when we do that, because we are stripping them down to a consumer of us. Mm-hmm. The object that we have made ourselves into, we've made them into the consumer of it. And yeah, I mean, it, it would make connection impossible
1: and and i yeah. learned that in my support groups hearing women share about objectifying men because certainly we're all aware that there's a great problem in men objectifying women right. um but i think any time you assign fantasy to someone whether it's sexual or not you're objectifying them you know uh, picturing them as this person who's going to rescue you, mm. or the person who's going to take your pain away. that That's a form of uh, dehumanizing them because then they are just a vessel for your needs.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And I think the objectification thing was, I mean, as I was going through this for my own stuff, uh, I was putting it together with my clients and the conversations we were having and how many of them were very clearly self-objectifying. Um, or when they would equate with, like, their, in their relationships, or if they were single, you know, it was always like, in order to get someone to love me, I must look hot enough, and I don't look hot enough now, so I'm not worthy of their love, even if they love me.
1: Um. They just don't know. Yeah, they just don't know.
2: Exactly. They're settling. Or I've tricked them. This is a very popular one. It's like I've tricked them by dieting and doing all this stuff that like I suck in my stomach. I pose. They don't know I'm secretly kind of fat. That's like a big thing. I'm like, okay, so something's going on here. That
1: needs to be the title of a book by you. They don't know that I'm secretly fat.
2: It's so common. People really, really believe they are good at manipulating others with all of this uh, body monitoring that we do, where you're Mm -hmm. like holding and posing and, you know, making sure it's all the right angles. And I was doing it too. I did it for a really long time, as long as I can basically remember. And so I also had that thing of like, well, if I were to just relax and be myself, then all of this fantasy I've built up about being hot would disappear what I know now is that it's almost imperceptible to the people around me, the difference between me doing that and not doing that. But at the time, it felt like I was so good at tricking people that that it would all just be, it would blow up in my face if I stopped.
1: That's so funny, because to me, when I see somebody holding the gut in, striking the angles, I always think, Oh, the God! they're so insecure, mm-hmm. and then when I see somebody with relaxed shoulders and just being natural, that to me is so attractive. yeah, and I don't know if that would have been true when I was in my twenties, but um, I think there are men who appreciate that naturalness,
2: yeah, so part of the performance, though, is knowing that uh being tense and insecure is not attractive. Like we yes. women, I mean, I guess everybody, but particularly women, we know that part of the the entire performance we're, we're trying to do is to look as hot as possible without ever letting anyone know we're putting any thought or effort into it. <laughs> so there's this like ending to it where we then have to pretend to be relaxed right. and laid back. Um, you know, it's the reason that so much of like our beauty routine is supposed to be under the radar. Like you wouldn't want someone to see you. Uh, you know putting on false eyelashes or whitening your teeth or something because that's a secret
0: <laughs> you right. don't want
2: to let them know it just has to be effortless
1: so how it, what were some of the things when you began to heal from your trauma <clears throat> some of the light bulbs that that began to go off one of the things you shared is that you you had um yeah. taken responsibility for it uh, as a yeah. as a child Uh, That somehow you attracted bad things to yourself. What were some of the positive things, you know, not just the erasing the negative things, but what were some of the positive things that came out of that healing? So a
2: huge one which has informed my work as a body image coach in a really, really major way is that my body has only ever been protecting me. And so the uh, injury that I had that sort of led me down this path, I, at the time, was thinking it's like me versus my stupid broken body, and it's stupid, stupid injury. And then I was like, oh, shit, like, it's actually injured because I hold my breath all the time. I'm so tense. My shoulders are up all the time. Like, it's just trying to help me not completely fall apart, right? And then when I started to learn about how the physiology of trauma works, uh, I realized that everything that i ever thought was wrong with my body was my body protecting me in one way or another mm. so it just totally shifted the paradigm from me versus my stupid bad broken wrong body into like like me and my body who's been here for every step of everything just patiently lovingly waiting for me to figure this out and be kind
1: to it which is in a way such a spiritual it was thing
2: it was way beyond anything I ever imagined. I mean, I, ca- I can't help but think that all this stuff comes down to spirituality in one way or another for everyone, even if you don't use that language. For me, it was so powerful. Like, oh, my God, it's just designed to help me. Yes. And I can trust it. Right. And that, that trusting my body was the first step towards towards trusting Basically anything. I think I walked around so afraid all the time because being a powerful person who made good people do bad things, one would be afraid all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. everything was dangerous. Um, I had really massive social anxiety. I was just constantly afraid, and my body showed it. Um, and so stage fright. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because I was so self-conscious. Like, everyone's looking at me. Everyone's, you know, thinking about me. And if anybody likes me, then they're going to like hurt me. They're going to cross a boundary.
1: It's, it's so funny. The buried narcissism in low oh self-esteem. God,
2: yes. I always say that. Like, your ego is tricky business. It tells you that you are so special that only you can be this bad.
1: <laughs> right. Right. And, and I also want to say to, uh, anybody out there who's dearing, dealing with some type of chronic illness, you know, maybe their immune system attacking itself. Um, it, it, obviously there are, are, are times when our, uh, it doesn't feel like our body is, is our friend. And I don't know what to say about that. So I don't, uh, the people pleaser in me doesn't want you to feel bad about yourself. Like, well, what about what about me? And uh, there's a codependent moment for you.
2: Well, I actually do think it's really worth touching on the fact that to me, there's a huge difference between acknowledging that your history or your you know beliefs might impact your body, and then blaming yourself for what went wrong in your body. Which sometimes people will hear my story and they'll be like. You know, uh, I have clients with fibromyalgia or other chronic illnesses, and sometimes it can be really empowering for them to be like, oh, my God, yes, I was, you know, I was burning the candle on both ends. I was really pushing myself. Maybe this is my body asking me to slow down. Great. Use that story if it works for you and it's empowering. But if somebody's like, are you telling me that I did this to myself and then they're in a shame cave? I'm like, that is not the right story for you then. It's just a tool and it doesn't help everybody. But it helped me because I was start, I was able to start having a dialogue with my body and start listening to the signals that I had previously marked in my head as, like, bad or trying to, you know, trying to get me to do something I didn't want to do, even hunger, I marked hunger as bad because it was trying to make me fat or whatever, mm-hmm. it was trying to fight my desire to look as good as possible. Um and all of a sudden I was like, "Oh my god, it's feeding me. It just wants me to live." <laughs> like right. it just changed the way I was categorizing everything, but it's it's not a tool that works for everybody.
1: Yeah. And maybe it's just doing the best that it can in the reality it's in.
2: Yeah. I do advocate for talking to your body for most of my clients at some point will We'll have a dialogue with whatever it is that they're struggling with. Um, and again, it's a tool that works really, really well for some people. And other people come back and they're like, yeah, my body didn't have anything to say. But yeah. like, that's great.
1: I'm a big advocate of talking to a picture of yourself when mm-hmm. things were really, really tough. Um, oh, some of the deepest sadness uh, that's ever come out of me came from talking to a picture of myself as a kid and one of the questions i like to ask on the podcast is if you could get in a time machine and go back to yourself at an age that was traumatic what would you say to yourself and how would the younger you what what might they think or say back to you so let's let's do that with you when you were seven if you could go talk to seven-year-old you what would you what would you say
2: God, that's tricky. Because at the time, I think that I, not that I wasn't bothered by it, you know, but I think it was, it was much more, I don't know, I guess I I would, I would tell her that, that it's okay that it bothered me, you know, like, Mm -hmm. it's okay that this feels weird in your head mm. that you're you're feeling like there's something weird going on it was right. weird it shouldn't have happened and it was mm. weird i think that's why because it took so long for me to like i i called it uh a weird thing that happened i think to my girlfriends and stuff was
1: it was it an adult
2: uh it was a teenager yeah yeah and and it was the older brother of a friend at a sleepover and it was like very clearly not i i think looking back not the first time uh, that something like that had happened, and i didn 't tell my parents for several years
1: to to you or to somebody by him
2: to somebody by him yeah um yeah, just it had a very uh smooth um, escalation you mm. know that makes me think as an adult looking back that that it was well-practiced unfortunately and so I didn't tell my parents until several years later and even then I was like I have something that I I suspect is important for me to tell you but it didn't exactly feel like a secret because I wasn't sure if anything had really been a problem so I kind of told them and they were like yes you know that is a problem So
1: you don't you don't have to be in tears or being pinned down or being threatened right for something to be traumatic. I mean,
2: I was seven. I was just a bit confused. Like, well, I don't want to touch you like that, but but you seem to want to. And sometimes people do things they don't want to do. Like it was just confusing, Mm -hmm. and I did get a sense. I remember having a sense in my gut, like I don't. I don't want to be here. But when I told my parents, I I very much framed it as like, I don't know if what I'm about to tell you matters, but I feel like I want to tell you. And they just listened. They were really good about it. And they were like, do you want to go back? We had moved at that point. Do you want to go back and like press charges or anything? I didn't want to like talk to police and do all that. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, I do look back and think, you know, that girl that was my friend that I was hanging out with, either her or other of her friends, um, you know, part of me wishes I had, advocated for that. But I was 10. And yeah, you know, so yeah, I think that w- what I would tell her is just simply like that my gut was right. That that your, your
1: body was being your friend.
2: Yeah, even then exactly. Even then my gut was like, Hey, like, we don't want to do this. That That's what that signal is. And I think I mistrusted that signal for the next two decades, because I wasn't sure how to categorize it. Um, And also because if I had acted on it, I would have hurt his feelings or made him upset or put myself in danger or something, right? So it started to feel like it's this signal in my body versus something that I have to do.
1: Yes, which I think is particularly um, difficult for women in our society. I mean, a lot of people are prone to be people pleasers, but it's almost expected of women That that's the polite thing to do, that that's being a good woman is to not make a scene, to keep smiling no matter what's happening.
2: Yep. Oh, man, I did this really interesting workshop in New York where – so it had been like after the Me Too movement, and so many of my followers were talking about how they also had like – Harassy moments. They weren't like sexual assault, or anything like that, just like little <clears throat> moments that were making them uncomfortable. And I was like, man, everybody's stepping up a little bit to, you know, self-defense. And there's things that you can teach people about, um, you know, someone who like grabs you. But nobody's talking about when someone makes an awkward sexist joke that sort of objectifies you in front of your boss, because that is still untouchable territory when we have real problems like, you know, the Me Too movement and all the horrific assault stuff. And so we did this workshop to to talk about how how to respond when it makes you uncomfortable. And the very first thing we did was like learn what it feels like inside of your body when you're uncomfortable, where Mm -hmm. we we did this exercise for people like walking at you. Um, And I would like walk at them and they would be like, and I'd be like, okay, that was it, right? You felt that. The moment you wanted me to stop aggressively walking at you is your body telling you, That you want a boundary, and we feel that on dates with men, when we're walking down the street and men catcall us, like we feel it everywhere. But we are taught to completely ignore it or divert that energy into something like a giggle, so that we're like, "Eh, yeah, thanks, instead of like, well, that was not appropriate, sir. So helping take that energy, or to be
1: flattered by it, which is my my favorite, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, because if we're not flattered by it, we know that he might turn on us, especially in like a catcall situation and get aggressive or violent.
1: And call you a lesbian.
2: <laughs> or a, uh, you know, a stupid cunt or something like it happens all the time. We know that. <clears throat> so, in New York City where you live? <laughs> <laughs> it it happens everywhere and it 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 is like, the reason that we distrust the signal in our body that says, hey, establish a boundary right now, this doesn't feel good, is that we know if we really established it in the real world, we'd probably be even less safe. So I think that thing distances women even further from the gut and the the trust of their body. And I don't know what any kind of parallel would be like for men or if you even experience the urge to uh, divert that boundary mm-hmm. impulse.
1: I, I have had uh, experiences of that, of um, – I was doing stand up years ago and I came off stage and I was, uh, sitting with a, a group of my friends and this attractive young woman, uh, came up to me, uh, blonde, big boobs, and she put her boobs, like pressed her boobs up against me and, and said, You were really funny. And her, and her face was like an, an inch from mine. And there was a part of me that mm-hmm. was flattered but there was a part of me that completely shut down my face got really red i got really tense and i was really embarrassed that it was mm-hmm. done in front of my friends and and afterwards <clears throat> i i was just so confused mm-hmm. because society tells you that oh my god if you know an attractive blonde woman is attracted to you you should be grateful yeah but um and then sometimes i would be on stage and women would say you know nice ass or something like that And again, a part of me would be flattered, but there was another part of me that felt exposed, Right. you know, but Hmm. these are a half dozen instances throughout my life. And I'm not trying to compare that to, um, somebody who is on the receiving end in the classical sense in, in in our society. But my mom also objectified me throughout my Hmm. whole childhood would grab me and touch me and talk to me like I was her husband and, um, that certainly sucked
2: so then for you what does the <clears throat> impulse to set a boundary feel like do, like do you feel that physically do you oh get a, yeah i
1: do i do yeah there's somebody in my support group that i had to set a boundary with because mm. whenever she would talk to me she would touch me too much mm, and yeah. and i didn't want to hurt her feelings because i do value her as a friend and and i would just you know my face would get kind of red and i would go back and forth yeah. on whether or not to to say something and um and i don't want to make this seem as if my whole life i've i've been you know victimized because i was an objectifier for years hmm. i was a pig and i have tremendous shame around that and i always feel the need to say that when we're talking about these these topics Mm. um and you know while i never you know sexually abused a child um that doesn't make it okay that i essentially did what what my mom did to me Mm. to um to women uh
2: huh well it's so interesting you say that because um Most of my followers and clients are women. Obviously, body image issues affect men as well. But I'm typically looking at it through the lens of the obstacles uh, that make each gender feel inadequate to what their ideal is are just Mm -hmm. different. And so I typically focus on the obstacles for women. But I often say things like, all I want a man to say when we talk about things like toxic masculinity or objectification or sexualization is, I've been a part of that, here's how, and now I know better. It's all I ever want to hear, and it is shocking how rarely I hear it. Really? Almost never, I would say. Even with good men who are starting to get educated in the world of like, you know, what does Me Too mean, and uh, what do women want in, in terms of boundaries? They'll still be like, yeah, other guys who are bad do that thing, and I'm glad that I know not to. And I understand the impulse to distance themselves from this bad behavior, of course. But it's also really a letdown to me when they don't say, and I've been a part of it, or I've benefited from it if I haven't directly been a part of it. Because without having done that work on yourself, I actually can't trust them. And so hearing you say this, it's like a weird, peaceful relief for me to be like, okay, you know then. You know, and you've done the work on yourself. And I swear that's all I ever want to hear from men. And I think similar, you know, analogously is... Uh, in anti-racism uh, work is mm-hmm. it's so easy to want to be like, yeah, white people are bad and they're like doing all this stuff and oppressing people. And it's much harder to be like, I, as a white person, am doing these behaviors or have done them. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem. It's so much more vulnerable to acknowledge. It's really, really yeah.
1: vulnerable. I think especially in the um, climate of piling on people who who have um, had bad behavior and their contrition often is, is uh, you know, thrown by the wayside. There seems to be an enjoyment in, you know, sending people to a desert island socially yeah. and making us feel better about ourselves because we weren't as egregious as yeah. as they are.
2: Totally. And I think it keeps us from feeling vulnerable. It keeps us from... Really facing up to certain pockets of shame that we want to keep in the dark, um, but yeah, you, even even in talking about it, like with things like that woman at your support group, of course she was not intending to do anything um, that would like hurt or trigger you, right? And I feel that way with all most of the men who have ever hurt or triggered me were not intending to do so. Right. So if we hold them only to the standard of what they intended, then I'm the crazy one,
1: right? But, and, and it doesn't help you heal right if that person doesn't recognize your reality because it's not just about culpability it's about what can we do for the person who's hurting
2: yeah yeah
1: but it's it's scary for for those of us who were not raised uh in a way where vulnerability was modeled mm-hmm. um and if we're a tad bit narcissistic, like I think I can be, it can be about how can I save my skin? How can I look good? And uh, that's something that I, I think I struggle with because I have a fear of abandonment. I have a fear of, um, you know, people saying, oh, you are really the terrible person you think you are. And we're taking everything away from you that you yeah. hold dear.
2: I'm curious, though, have you, I mean, with this kind of podcast, have you noticed that any of this shame has been busted by warm support to your vulnerability
1: oh my god beyond words yeah beyond words uh especially from from women because mm. and many of my male friends share this same feeling that we're not afraid to open up to other men because we feel they will understand us but we're afraid that if women knew oh, our wow. darkest secrets they would not love us. And in my support group, I found the exact opposite of that. I shared oh. some of my darkest moments with uh, female friends and cried on their shoulders. And seeing them look me in the eyes and tell me that they love me and they trust me and I'm not that person anymore yeah. was beyond, beyond healing. But if I hadn't wow. taken that leap in getting vulnerable... Um If I hadn't gone to that support group, I think no amount of therapy in the world would have gotten me to that place. I had yeah. to um you know uh, I had to experience that acceptance
2: yeah, God, that's so painful and beautiful at the same time the It's something I see with my clients for sure where they're like, okay, so you're telling me I have to face my biggest fear and get more vulnerable and that some people won't like me and I'm going to have to deal with that, but that you think it's worth it and I'll finally be able to connect, feel loved, accept love and love myself.
1: That's a tall order. It's a tall order. And I think that's why going to a support group every week Mm. and letting those people or at least some of the people there, because not everybody's safe, um, Right. Let them become your family.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly feel that the more I talked about my my shame, right, the things, the pockets of shame that I had been trying to hide, which includes everything from the fact that my body doesn't look the way that I had been posing it and holding it to look mm-hmm. or flexing or sucking it, or whatever, um, all the way down to, like, I have child abuse in my past and, um that i felt like i sort of drew it to me mm-hmm. and i was this person that uh yeah all of that stuff the more i talked about it online and the the warm support i got and all the messages of like you know wow thank you this helped me and all of that stuff it was actually really healing um or really really supportive of my healing i guess mm-hmm. to have a place to kind of come out and be supported that way and of course not everybody likes it that's the trade off but yeah. yeah yeah it's true
1: If you're comfortable talking about it one of the ripples of sexual trauma is how it affects our sexuality Mm. our ability to be intimate the things that uh turn us on the things that turn us off Um, is there any of that that you're you're comfortable talking about
2: sure yeah um so i'd say the biggest uh, effect of all of my story was that I couldn't orgasm with a person around, um, so I, I could any ma- any person so
1: solo was the only way you
2: solo could. was the only way and with a like a vibrator or something with really really strong. Um, Vibration and then a jackhammer basically. Yeah, because uh, because I now know because I I didn't have access to any of those sensations. So it was like the only way that anything was going to happen was if there was no choice. And even then sometimes it wouldn't happen. And I would, you know, get really frustrated because it felt like this thing that I was chasing an orgasm and uh, my body just like refused to participate but I didn't know any better. I didn't, you know, I would hear other people talking about the great sex they were having. And I was like, yeah, sex is fun. I'm also having great sex. Um, and I vividly remember my best friend in college. She was like, how could you be having great sex? You never orgasm. And I'm like, because it's great. Like, cause I love it. Cause I get validation from it and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And all of those things were true. But now looking back, I think like I was having terrible sex because I I couldn't feel any pleasure but what I what I rated as good sex was objectifying myself enough that I turned the other person on and gave them a good experience which I loved and I got lots of validation from yes and so my definition of great sex has changed um dramatically over the years but yeah, that was the major thing was that for me sex was about performing for someone else and giving them an experience. And it all came back to this story of like I am so desirable mm-hmm. that that that's where my value comes from. Um and I was willing to play into it. it. It it actually felt empowering. I would have used the empowering word back then, although now looking back, it's kind of anything but. Um but yeah, it was Because
1: the, that was the the beginning and end of it right as opposed to also letting this person love you
2: yes and even beyond that letting my letting myself show up at all like I had so little sensation um that yeah it it was like even orgasming was more like scratching an itch than actual pleasure You know, it was like, "Ah, I just want to, like, be done with this energy that I have, and I want to out. It was never like, ooh, this really feels delicious. Right,
1: from a relaxed place. Yeah, I had
2: no access to that. Yeah. And, yeah, and so, I mean, if you ask my first boyfriends, like, they would think that I was, like killer in bed because uh, everything was about like putting on a show for them and giving them an experience and being whatever I thought would be hot for them Um, and like I said I did enjoy it so it's not like it was like this torture but, but it was the beginning and the end of sex for me was them and their experience um And I kind of just didn't count. And anyone who was like, oh, I want you to come or I want you to like feel good. I'm like, don't 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 put that pressure on me because I can't and I won't. And like, let's just move on.
1: Would you have any moments afterwards, maybe after they left where you would uh, there would be a come down and you would feel lonely or, or empty or?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that. Those words apply, but mostly what it felt like was that they didn't love me enough. Hmm. So despite me not giving them any kind of opportunity to do so, there was a a feeling of uh, like inequality in that way or like that I wasn't being truly seen. Hmm. So, yeah, loneliness. I, I wanted to be really seen and I wanted space held for me. And when it came to sex, I just couldn't let that happen um because as soon as someone was focusing on me i remembered that i like can't orgasm they're gonna waste all this time like i'm not you know worthy of this attention it was like all of this stuff would just come up because fundamentally i'm here to give them a positive experience
1: Mm -hmm. and you and you would not fake orgasms
2: Uh, I mean, I'm sure I have, but uh, yeah, that wasn't like my typical, I think that when I did, it was because they, they, somebody was specifically putting pressure on me. Mm. uh, Like, I want to make you happy. And I was like, oh, great. So then my job is to look like I'm orgasming for you. Like, that's fine. Right. It's all part of the same thing, but I wouldn't do it unless that was the case. Um, Yeah. And so I started.
1: Would you have to go into your head? sometimes to try to get to your to try to get yourself to that point great
2: question yes fantasies and everything absolutely yeah Yeah, i would fantasize aggressively uh even when i was like masturbating because that was really the only way i could do it because again it had nothing to do with like the sensations of pleasure in my body um and that started to change when around the same time i was doing all the other healing work honestly was like starting to look at what it would mean if I breathed deeply, went slowly and let someone touch me from that place. Um, yeah, everything started to shift. And then also learning, um, you know, like learning about the way that female sexuality even works, which I did not realize, Um Things like the our our turn on and turn off systems and and how we respond and the fact that um, you know if we are anxious or thinking self conscious thoughts we won't be able to feel the like the volume of our sensation will be dialed down so it all just started to make sense as I was learning mm. about trauma and sex it all kind of uh, shifted together.
1: Have you read the book The Body Keeps the Score?
2: It's one of my all time favorites. I
1: had the feeling yeah that was a that was a book for you. I
2: read that and uh, Waking the Tiger. Um, and come as you are, like all within three months of each other. Come as you are is on sex. Have you read that one? Mm-mm. Oh, God, it's so good. It's for like female it's by, sexuality. It's by Nirvana. <laughs> it's by uh, a woman named Emily Nagoski. And it's, I feel like it should be required reading for anyone with a vagina or anyone who has sex with people with a vagina. It's just so helpful. And yeah, all of those came really rapid fire for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was learning how to like be present in my body, breathe, relax, and feel
1: and did uh, you same time. ever invite a partner into your process while while you were doing trying to get to that place where you could relax
2: um a good question i mean i think that i did very superficially like i would i would explain what i was learning mm. um i think that i i tried some you know i would like request certain things like i want us to do a thing where you touch me for 20 minutes and i'm not allowed to touch you to take the pressure off of me like doing or performing what
1: a great idea
2: yeah it was really helpful um it wasn't even especially sexual it was just like for me to learn how to receive uh-huh without um immediately wanting to flip it around and be like okay well my time's up it's time for you now you know right. um yeah and there's something called OM that gave me the idea for that uh or- orgasmic meditation um which is basically just a woman receiving for 20 minutes stimulation clitoral stimulation
1: in the middle of a yoga class
2: Uh, no, but like (laughs) within that kind of context, it's not about sex. It's more about like meditation and learning to accept and receive and breathe and be present and all that stuff. Um, yeah, so that was part of where that came from and it it was helpful. I mean, bit by bit, you know, each of these things was helpful. Um, I went through a breakup at some point because I realized that I like could not communicate with the partner I had at the time in any way that was going to be useful. Yeah. Um, and then from then on, I started like from the get-go, I had different boundaries. You know, like the next person that I wanted to be sexual with, I was like, okay, but just so you know, I used to not be able to come and now I'm going to. Mm-hmm. So buckle up. Like we're gonna yes. you know, like it changed from then on. I had different expectations about what sex was going to look like. Um I think for a while I would like set boundaries that were, you know, like like that I wouldn't I wouldn't serve them sexually. Um, either until after or at a separate time then mm-hmm. they served me or that we were like, you know, because that took the, the pressure yeah, off. I needed you. that. Yeah. Yeah because otherwise the script was so embedded in my head about what my role in sex was that I couldn't separate them. Even now, occasionally, I find it difficult to separate them. I find myself, like, you know, if someone's, like, doing something for me that I'm like, okay, well, how long has it been? You know, I get right. a little self-conscious. I'm like, it's I should probably turn this around, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, so I can't that, make them work over time. Yeah, then what, I'm selfish.
2: That's exactly it, yeah. It's like I'm reversing this universal law about who is who and, you know, what each of us gets. And so even though, yeah, I mean, it's still a work in progress for sure, but um, but I no longer see sex that way. Yeah.
1: And what I like, too, as you share about that, is that you are... Giving your partner an opportunity to love you unconditionally, to love the authenticity within you, to me, which then adds momentum to the healing and the better sex because that person knows you more deeply. And to me, there is such a relaxation and a pleasurable freedom in being known when you are being intimate with somebody. It's you know even if it means inviting them into your head sometimes Mm -hmm. my girlfriend will say you know it sounds like you're in your head right now you're you're quiet (laughs) and then i will say well i'm thinking about such and such and and it's what i love about her is she meets me where i am Mm. she doesn't expect me a hundred percent of the time to be there because sometimes and I'm sorry if I'm sharing too much, no. but sometimes to finish I need to go into my head, but I invite her oh. there with me. And so then it feels like there's intimacy throughout throughout the whole thing. But I, I, I do still feel some shame hmm. about it. And she she is always so loving and accepting and saying, Baby, you know, don't don't be ashamed, you know, it's it's yeah. it's okay.
2: That's beautiful. And I absolutely Uh, resonate with with the idea of being known being a part of what makes me feel safe and relaxed in order to orgasm now i know so like it's actually an odd thing um i used to always hear people say like oh sex is so vulnerable and intimacy is so vulnerable and i literally was like what are you guys talking about no it's not you just do what they want it's actually pretty easy and really like didn't cost me anything and now it's it's super vulnerable and now with i'm single so it's like as i'm dating and things i'm like i don't want to hook up with someone who doesn't know me who i don't Mm -hmm. like unless i feel known in a way and the boundaries are really safe in some other context but like it's confusing to me now it's vulnerable to me now because i'm actually here for
1: it and you're you're you and your body are communicating
2: yeah i'm present i'm listening um And I have this different expectation, which is like, it would not be acceptable to me now to have the kind of sex that I used to have where like he finishes and we just move on. Um, So it's, yeah, it's an interesting place to be in (laughs) because I'm like more sexually liberated than ever before and having less sex than ever in my life Mm. because it means something completely
1: different now. A question I, I forgot to ask you when we were talking about body image is uh, the topic of compliments, mm. which I think can be such a minefield. Um, I remember reading a survey where a, a woman shared that when she was a child, her body was always praised by her parents, and that fucked her up because mm-hmm. it gave her the sense that this was the most important thing about her. Yeah. Um, and I know that well-meaning people sometimes want to praise somebody but it's so complicated and i'm not going to begin to try yeah. to unwind that so
2: god i have so much to say about it so i i personally believe like that n- nobody should ever be commenting on other people's bodies there's just no reason but I also recognize that it's such an ingrained habit culturally that we're not going to get away from it tomorrow. Mm. So let's not, you know, I'm not going to like demonize compliments on people's appearance.
1: Would you, but you would obviously make the exception when you're being intimate with your partner saying that you you know, you turn, you turn me on.
2: Well, here's the thing. The mm. exception that I make, I, I actually don't make an exception because um, at this point, I think we can do better than the compliments that we're used to getting and giving. Um, but Most of those compliments are about judging the person's, um, like on a, on a scale of acceptability, their beauty, their body, whatever, of like, you are gorgeous, says, I've looked at you, I've determined that on a scale of here to here, you're, you win, you're, you're Mm -hmm. acceptable. So. First of all, that person will not necessarily receive it if they don't actually already feel gorgeous, mm-hmm. because they'll just disagree. So they'll be like, oh, well, that's your opinion. And mine is that I'm an you know disaster.
1: And now is not the time to debate.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, they'll probably say something like, oh, thanks. And then they'll be like, why don't I believe it when people compliment me and mm-hmm. whatever. It's just an opinion you can disagree with. But if someone shares impact instead of assessment, then they say like, wow, seeing you really like lights up my day person cannot disagree with that Mm because you're just sharing how their appearance impacted you. That is powerful. That is a step in the right direction. If we're gonna be complimenting people's appearance, I think sharing impact is the way to go. Like you're so um, radiant today, like seeing you makes me feel happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of times when we compliment appearance, what we mean is I'm just glad to see you. We say like, oh my God, you look great. And what we mean is like, I'm so happy to see you. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm just a believer that we can do better. A better compliment is sharing impact in bed. I also want that saying like you're so hot is a bit bland to me whereas Mm -hmm. saying like you turn me on that shares impact is super sexy because i want to know what's going on in your head in your body and your Mm -hmm. experience that helps me feel closer
1: yeah
2: and i don't want to have to sit there for a split second and think like am i hot or am i not what do i think what am i like on a scale of one to ten where am i right now like that puts me back in a place of objectifying myself and thinking about what I'm comparing against like his past partners my past partners you know it's like a messy place to put myself for no reason so i really believe in sharing impact um, even in the bedroom and i try not to be militant about it because i don't want to i don't want to shame anybody for complimenting me because there's there's no need to have that kind of negative reaction and in,
1: because intent is certainly something that needs right, to be weighed very completely. heavily
2: and so what i do sometimes is i like encode and decode, you know, so if somebody's like, you look great, I hear, I'm happy to see you. I just Mm -hmm. do that quick flip in my head. Um, or as I sometimes tell clients is like, just to hear it is like a love bomb. Like somebody's like, mm-hmm. um, oh my God, that dress looks great on you. And what they mean is like, I want you to feel good. It's just right. like a little like, huh, of energy that they're, they want to give you good energy. So in that way, I typically won't say anything unless it's somebody I have a long-term relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when my dad, if he tells me I'm beautiful and I just get really sick of it, he's someone I want to have a conversation about why I no longer want to hear comments like that. Um, and for him, he was actually able to hear as well that I only got complimented on days that I fit this conventional beauty norm, and so that makes me feel self-conscious about the days that I don't, and he was able to hear it, but I'm not going to have that conversation with, like, a random person on Instagram who's like, you look so beautiful in this picture, you know? Uh,
1: and how about saying um, you're a beautiful person?
2: I like that. I think that is still, it's still a step better than, like, the very flat compliment of you're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it it can be better, but it's a step in the right direction. I use it sometimes when when I'm like sort of at a loss because it's a new skill to be complimenting Mm -hmm. more deeply. Um, Because I still totally have the impulse to comment on people's appearance in Mm -hmm. a lovely way. Like I see people, I think I'm so happy, and I say, "You look great." It happens. Um, But I think, yeah, I make a conscious effort to go way deeper. And like with my little niece and nephew, I make a conscious effort to make sure that. if i've commented on her appearance that i also link it to something about her that i love you know I'll be like you know like oh my gosh how cute are you and then i immediately catch myself and mm-hmm. i'm like because you look so courageous in this whatever you know mm-hmm. i try to find ways to make sure that it's not where we end
1: how about uh uh you know god you know you have great hair i i love your hair or your eyes are are, are such a uh, wonderful color
2: You know, I think it's kind of the same thing. Like, I'm not going to necessarily call someone out for doing it, but ultimately that doesn't give me much because to me, how I look is the very least important and interesting thing about me. So sometimes I'll respond with like, thanks, I agree. So that I've kind of like Mm -hmm. given a little bit of, I'm not, I'm not expressing gratitude for your approval. I'm expressing gratitude for your, your kind intent. Right. Um, and sometimes if we're talking about like being on Tinder or something like that, um, men will will find that response odd. You know, like, thank you, I agree. And they're like, oh, well then, you know, right. because the assumption is that I should feel grateful for their approval. So that's another way that I, I like to sort of try to interrupt that line of thinking. Or sometimes I'll just say, um, again, if it's somebody I plan on continuing to interact with, I might say, I find uh, comments on my appearance a bit boring. There are so many things to compliment on me. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't find that one very interesting. It's not a bad thing. I'm not saying you can't, right. but like, it's a bit boring. Like, you look pretty. Thanks, I guess. I mean, it's just my face. But if right. somebody's like, you know, I read what you wrote and it was so helpful, I'm like, wow, thank you. Like, that's yeah. so great to know. And,
1: you know, what I like is the tone that you meet them with is, is, leaves the door open for them not to feel cornered and shamed. And I think if people are going to be woke, the door needs to be open because nobody's yeah. going to be pushed through that door.
2: I agree. And like, there are times, um, I think my dad is a perfect example, I asked him to, st- like, it was a hard boundary. It was like, stop commenting on what I look like, because he was not somebody who was getting it right or really hearing why. Mm-hmm. So I was like, great, we're taking it off the table. There's a new rule now, mm-hmm. and you have to follow it. Um, but for, for the most part, it doesn't have to be a rule. It can simply be a sharing of impact. Like, hey, when you compliment me that way, sometimes I get in my head and feel self-conscious. And they're like, oh, my God, that's the opposite of what I want. And I'm like, right, yeah. that's why I'm sharing
1: this. It seems like we can almost never go wrong sharing what we're feeling. Oh,
2: my God. I feel that way all the time. Like, does everybody know if you just speak your truth, like good things happen? Right. It's this magical thing that we can just tell each other what we think and feel and need. And if we all did that all the time, everything would be better. But we don't because vulnerability and we've been conditioned not to and we're afraid of hurting each other and all those
1: things. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, share or touch on? I feel like we've we, we talked about so many things before we started recording. Mm. Uh, I'm afraid that we're we're missing something. Um, <laughs> but it, I also feel like we covered so much. Yeah. What are some resources um, that that people can find if they're struggling with any of the stuff that we've uh, talked about? And, and of course, where can they find you on uh, social mm. media yeah. and stuff they want to read? Well, or get on your mailing list?
2: Yeah. So as far as resources go, um, I think if anybody has, like, trauma in their past, that the body keeps the score and waking the tiger are amazing. Obviously, nothing replaces a good therapy relationship. Um, or like you said, a support group community relationship. But I think they're really good places to start. Come as you are is, likewise, a great place to start if you're struggling with sex. Um sex and trauma or just sex and not being as enjoyable as you want it to be. Um, And yeah, I I guess that's where I would start there. And if it's body image specific, like if someone is struggling with accepting, you know, their weight, their size, their shape, their flaws, um, some of the body positivity resources are like health at every size and intuitive eating, both are books and also movements, you can find, you know, the resources all over the internet for those. Because they really help you poke holes in the idea that a woman must look a certain way in order to be of value, Um, which is really what a lot of this comes down to. For me, it had a very specific beginning and thread of like, I am here to be objectified sexually by men like it was very clear. But it's not always that clear for some people. For some people, it's just about weight. And they have been taught by parents that like, oh, no, you don't want to get too big, you know, and they, they've been put on diet since they were kids, or they've been shamed by partners. Um, and it all comes down to I owe it to the people around me to give them an experience not to live for myself. So I think that the health at every size and intuitive eating really help Shed light on that in a way that is sort of like life altering, where you're like, "Oh shit, I've been doing all of my life. I've been imagining someone else as the star player in my life." You know? Yeah. Um, so that's really helpful. And then as far as my stuff goes, I do uh, Instagram. It's Jesse Nealand. Facebook Jesse Nealand. Twitter Jesse Nealand. And
1: J E S S I k-n-e-e-l-a-n-d
2: that's right and then that's my website as well jessineeland.com. Um I have like some free ebooks uh, that you can download I have uh, different courses and things and then I do private coaching uh, from wherever in the world and yeah was that all of the things you asked me? yeah <laughs>
1: I, think, I think so uh, yeah we covered a lot of stuff yeah. uh, I really appreciate it thank you for coming on thank you many many thanks to to jessie love talking to her Let's dive into some surveys. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself OK. She is, uh, she's 17. She identifies as asexual. She was raised well, I guess is still being raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, She writes, I know I was abused, but I can't remember it, and it sucks. I feel like I can't open up about it because I can't relay exact details as my memories are blurred. I have flashbacks and disjointed memories that I need to put together, but I'm too scared of finding out the truth. I'm also ashamed of the perpetrator as I fear it's a family member. God, that has got to be so hard. And there are so many people I hear from that have fragmented memories. And, uh, you know, a lot of times they will use that to minimize what happened to them because they can't remember. But uh, so many of them are hurting because you still have the pain of having experienced that, but you have the hurdle of not being able to really get a clean, grasp on on what happened but i think the important thing is to just start processing the feelings even if the the memories are fractured and and blurred because either way you still have to deal with the feelings you know a lot of people i think get hung up on the details as if you're going to need to put it together to to have a court case um but you don't to start processing the feelings. You just start talking about what you feel in your body, uh, what, your, what your day is like, the things that freak you out, the things that help you, the things that hurt you, and just make your way that way. And then who knows, sometimes that may be enough that pieces start to come together. But even if the pieces don't ever come together, it's, it's worthwhile processing what we're experiencing today, what we're feeling today. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My parents are emotionally abusive. I'm never good enough for them and never have been. They are invasive and I have no privacy. They read my journals, text, and search my room. They discipline me by taking my food off. They constantly gaslight me, which doesn't help with my broken memories. I had family therapy in the psych ward, but they just dictated how I was meant to feel. And every time I stuck up for myself, it was seen as being disrespectful towards them. There has also been episodes of physical abuse for discipline, but somehow that is so much easier to deal with. Wow, I hope you get out of this house as soon as you turn 18. This sounds so, so toxic. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My abusers are my parents, and they aren't bad parents. I get what I want, and materialistically, I am spoilt. S-P-O-I-L-T. That means that she was spoiled uh, in the Old West in the 1800s. When I've tried to open up, I get the classic, but they're your parents, and their behavior is excused. Even when I know that if it was a romantic relationship, people would be urging me to get out of it. What you get materialistically has nothing to do with what you get emotionally. Those are two completely separate things darkest thoughts I think my parents are selfish for giving birth to me because I didn't ask to be born and live through this and live this horrible life the only thing stopping me killing myself is knowing that I will lose my independence if it fails darkest secrets the reason why I won't let anyone touch me is because I was abused but don't remember it I love my scars and never want them to fade because I know that they are the one part of my body that my abuser hasn't seen. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love to tell my parents that they are emotionally abusive and they can't convince me that they aren't because I have solid evidence. They may never agree with you, but you still have the power to choose whether or not you want to have a relationship with them. And one of the things... And it's different because you're 17 and you are still trapped there for another year. Um, But one of the things that people do sometimes is they will continue to have a relationship with people who abuse them because they don't want to deal with the feelings of breaking off a relationship or distancing themselves from from those people. And then they still place all the blame on the other people. And that... That is a crazy maker uh, because we're not taking that power that we have to decide who we allow to have access in our lives. I would love to tell my, oh, um, what if anything do you wish for? I want to recover. I wish I didn't feel like I needed my mental illness to be me. Have you shared these things with others? Never. How do you feel after writing these things down? Paranoid that someone I know will read this and then in uh, in caps, but I'm sitting through it. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Open up to yourself. Suppressing it will cause longer-term pain. Being honest with yourself is fucking painful, but less impacting in the long run. Amen. I really, really hope that you take care of yourself. It's um. God, why is that cord so hard to sever with parents, even even when they're toxic? I suppose genetically, that's the thing that helped us survive to the to this point. You know, evolutionarily. These are some loves filled out by a woman who calls herself Bentles. She writes, "I love popping bubble wrap." I love sitting on the beach in the sun. I love snowboarding when it's so hot. You take your snow jacket off and snowboard down the mountain in just your ski pants and tea and then parentheses, maybe that's only in Australia. Question mark. I didn't even know you could ski in Australia. That is a good feeling too. Skiing or snowboarding when it's when it's so warm out, but when you wipe out it hurts so bad because the snow is like sandpaper or it's really hard because it's iced over and hasn't warmed up yet. I love when you're on a busy bus and you don't have to sit next to anyone. Oh, that is such a good one. That is such a good one. Isolators of the world unite around that one. Any comments to make the podcast better? More dog buttholes. Oh, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Every day, I uh, put on my rollerblades, and I go for about a 20-minute rollerblade with uh, with Gracie. And she tears it up, man. She, the first five minutes, she's just almost running full speed. And then always after about five minutes, she'll start to slow down, and she'll start looking for a place to shit. And I can always tell because her, her butthole will start puckering. And you can tell if you're a dog owner. You can tell when your dog's getting ready to shit. And <laughs> whenever her asshole starts... Puff- I don't know why, but I get so much joy out of talking to her as if she's a person when we're skating. And uh, when <laughs> her asshole starts puckering, puffer- I'll start saying, Are you getting ready to serve Romperost? I think someone. I think there's a hostess who's getting ready to serve people rump roast. And then when she poops it out, I say, that looks a little underdone. (laughs) And it makes me laugh. She has no idea how insane her owner is. These are some loves filled out by a guy who calls himself, has anyone actually called them soda crackers in the last 38 years? That's a great name. Uh, I love that there is a particular creative hobby I've been doing for the last 40-plus years and that I'm still practicing and getting better at. I love that it also sometimes helps me forget what a colossal failure I've been at relationships. That's such a great one. There are times when I'll sit down and play guitar and I think, well, I've done this. I started this when I was 14 and I've stuck with it and I have something to show for it. It's incredible how mean our brain can be. It's just black and white, just painting everything as failure. Or the future is doom, and we forget about all the beautiful little moments. Any comments to make the podcast better? A red carpet gala featuring the gala, yeah, gala. gala? featuring the Swedish chef. I don't even know who the Swedish chef is, but that made me laugh the idea of a red carpet. Is it Gala? Gala? Maybe it's both. This is a shaman secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Midwest Jackalope. He's in his 20s. He identifies as bi-curious. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, I would say that it sounds a lot worse than that, but... Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When my parents separated when I was nine, we started a nightly rotation at my mom's house to see whose turn it was to sleep in her bed with her. Yeah, that's fucked up. That's fucked up. When when, When the parent is using the child for comfort, that is not good. That is not good. I participated in this for at least two years until I refused to sleep in her bed anymore. I can't speak for my sisters, but I either never had any touching happen or I can't slash won't remember it. Besides that, I had trouble throughout my childhood with constipation. My parents would get me to eat and slash drink as much fiber as I could to help with this, but sometimes it just wasn't enough. Their eventual eventual go-to solution was suppository laxatives because I couldn't swallow pills yet. I'm in my mid-20s and I haven't had any experience, nearly as humiliating as having a parent hold my legs and insert something into my backside while I kicked and screamed that I didn't need it or want it. The last time it happened, I was five. I'm not sure if this counts, though, because it was a solution for my constipation. And you know, that's kind of similar to what I was talking about earlier Where the culpability of somebody who, you know, uh, made that happen isn't the important thing in the short term. The important thing in the short term is, is processing the feelings, finding somebody safe and qualified to open up to about that, and then working through it. He's never been physically abused, but he's been emotionally abused. He writes, "...both of my parents were and are very angry people. Mostly they are angry at each other and themselves, but my sisters and I end up in their crosshairs fairly regularly. My mom is the master of passive aggression, with shining moments of rage. Until recently, she could guilt trip me into doing just about anything, and if I didn't, she would yell until I changed my mind." My dad was happy to neglect us until we destroyed something in his biosphere of perfection. He's a perpetual fixer and thinks that he has the solution no matter the problem. He's the perfect storm of emotional neglect and invalidation. Coming to him with any emotional issue is an exercise in futility. He will break apart your feelings, tell you how physically abusive his dad was, and give you a three-step process on how to fix your life. All of these issues showed up before they split up. Once they were out of the same house, they waged full-on emotional war using my sisters and I as pawns. Both my parents have admitted to me that they 100% tried to get my siblings and I to turn on the other parent in the years following their divorce. This still happens, but my siblings and I have learned what to look for so we can deal with it in an appropriate manner, dot, dot, dot ignoring it. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I have a hard time remembering the good times with my parents. I know there were good times, but through therapy I'm finding out that I have apparently repressed quite a bit of shit, and unfortunately the good stuff doesn't present itself as easily as the bad. And I think an important thing too, when you're processing that, is not to wait for some revelation as to whether whether or not your parents are good or bad, because people... Good people are capable of bad things, and bad people are capable of good things. It, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's kind of it's about identifying your feelings, the things that fuck with you, and finding a way to protect yourself so you can navigate the world and not feel dread when you wake up in the morning. And you know, that suicide doesn't seem like the answer because i think when we feel trapped in our in our lives it sounds kind of obvious but that's so often when suicidal ideation comes in and if we really look at the things that we're not willing to take off the table and reconsider those you know life can seem a lot more freeing and exciting but if we take off the table cutting people out of our lives or distancing ourselves from them. We're, we're painting ourselves into a corner, and that's, I think, a lot of times when the addictions and isolation and all the other things flare up. Darkest thoughts. I think about death and dying almost every day. I haven't ever made any sort of plan to kill myself because I'm terrified of dying, but some days life sure would be simpler if I wasn't alive. Darkest secrets. I am a porn addict. I was introduced to porn at a very early age, eight, by a schoolmate, and have been looking at it ever since. I've had other, more public addiction struggles, but this is the one that almost no one knows about. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you: degradation, humiliation, femdom, basically becoming someone's object. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to confront my dad about how he's hurt me. I've made baby steps towards saying this to him, but he totally shuts down and either won't talk to me for a week or quickly changes the subject. If you are going to confront your dad, do it for yourself. Don't do it in anticipation of him hearing you and validating your feelings because, um and you probably know that, but sometimes it's good to be reminded of that because we can get into that fantasy that we're going to change other people or they're going to see the light and then we just wind up tearing that wound open again and again and again. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be able to truly not care. I feel so much apathy towards humanity in general, but it's always accompanied by massive amounts of guilt. I'd love to break free of that guilt and not worry about anyone else. Have you shared these things with others? Some of them. I started therapy for my addiction in January of 2017, and through that, a lot of these issues have popped up in one way or another. Outside of therapy, I haven't talked about it. I don't think anyone in my family is ready to hear any of this, and they might not be ready anytime soon. How do you feel after writing these things down? Pretty indifferent, which is par for the course for me. This will be a great outline for my next therapy session, uh, though. though, so that's nice. By the way, um, I have not been able to keep up with the shame and secret survey, and I am about two years behind because I can really only read about 10 a week, any more than that, and I start to um, get depressed, and it just gets too heavy. So those of you that have filled out shame and secret surveys, and you're like, is mine ever going to get read? Well, there's a chance it might not get read because I can never read as many as get filled out. Almost ten thousand of these have been filled out, and I'm uh, I'm just one man. <laughs> anyway, I just felt the need to to share that. Um, these are some loves filled out by a woman who calls herself Persephone. She writes, I love cleaning out my ears with a Q-tip right after getting out of the shower. Even though they say you aren't supposed to do it, I'm not going to stop. And I am reporting you to the bathroom police. So enjoy that when your door gets kicked down and they say, put down the Q-tip. I love loud thunderstorms and lighting candles when the power goes out. When the electricity goes, so does all the technology, and I am forced to simply exist and listen to the rain. I love when I have such intense orgasms with a loving partner that I break out into uncontrollable, uncontrollable laughter or sobbing or both. I love when he understands this is a powerful emotional release triggered by feeling deeply connected and moved. Those are awesome. Any comments to make the podcast better? I love how honest people are with their answers on these surveys. The authenticity is very powerful and sometimes jarring, but even then, I respect the candor. I love hearing that, that people get stuff out of the surveys because I sometimes wonder, oh, am I just uh, the only person that uh, is drawn to reading about the, the darkness? But I also love the light. I mean, that's why I started the happy moments and the loves. It's just nice to to have that balance. And finally, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself breakfast breakfast crumbs. She identifies as straight, uh, but also I enjoy hooking up with girls. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, Was the victim... Of sexual abuse and reported it and then was also uh, some stuff happened but she doesn't know if it counts. My first boyfriend pressured me into having sex before I was ready at 14. I resisted and he continued to push I gave in and still deal with issues of sexuality, though 10 years later, I finally feel a smaller need to control people through sex. I had used it as a way to get what I wanted—drugs, attention, affection—throughout high school. I was the biggest slut out of anyone I know, and it doesn't bother me at all. I got drunk at a party my parents had told me I couldn't go to, and I, quote, came to with a brother of a friend having sex with me against the house. I took responsibility for being drunk. I never considered it rape, but my mom found out what happened and made me go to the police station. I was only 18. I lost all of my friends from that town and had death threats and even had told the police officer my mom had made me go. That is trauma upon trauma forcing a kid to go to the police station. Hmm. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mom is emotionally abusive. Uh, Untreated mental illness has ravaged her. She took out frustration with my father on me and my siblings, though I tried to take the brunt of it. I'm the oldest. I got physical a few times that I can remember. It got physical a few times that I can remember. The worst instance I can remember was being knocked out flat after she backhanded me for something I can't even remember. I was 10 or 11, and had spent time doing my hair that morning, and she messed it up. I had to get on the bus with tears in my eyes. Oh, that is so heartbreaking. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, my mom has been one of my closest family members and closest friend when I had no one else. It makes it incredibly difficult to establish boundaries with her now. Darkest Thoughts I still have self-harm thoughts after six-plus years of therapy, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and heavy self-help work. I desperately miss my eating disorder, but I know I have the capability to kill myself with it, and I don't think anyone would ever be a good replacement family for my rescue dog. I have had sexual fantasies about my boss. Darkest Secrets. I love this one. I ate all of the chocolate chips out of a shitty roommate's expensive organic non-GMO trail mix, leaving the yucky dried fruit and nuts. <laughs> you are a monster. You are the worst person in the world. That's funny because that would be the one part of trail mix that I wouldn't like. We would have made great roommates. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Threesomes with another female and my current partner. I love seeing him make someone feel the way he makes me feel from another perspective. I typically fantasize about women in one-on-one fantasies. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to be able to tell my mom I forgive her without her getting angry at having done anything I needed to forgive. What, if anything, do you wish for? a better paying job and a couch for my apartment my ex took everything the downside is i don't have any place to sit but the upside is that i can do 5 cartwheels in any direction before i run into anything ah uh, that's so fantastic that that image is what i hoped to do with this podcast just it cartwheels in an empty apartment after being broken up. That is what I want this podcast to be. Have you shared these things with others? Some of them, generally people, are accepting. How do you feel after writing these things down? Calm and quiet. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Life is a lot more fun when you can learn to laugh at the bullshit. What a great survey. Thank you so much for that and thank you all you guys for filling out the survey even if I didn't read your survey and thanks to the guests and the monthly supporters and um, I just really really appreciate it and if you're out there and you're feeling stuck you're not alone you are so not alone everybody's got something that that they're dealing with Um, and the mean part of our brain loves to make us think that we're the only one that's fucking up and that we're not doing life right and it can be the very thing that connects us those those struggles anyway i hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, as i said you're not alone and thanks for listening
0: everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird ways bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways